0: This week has been a sobering and eye-opening week in professional wrestling, not just in the UK, but around the world. Each day that's passed recently has seen more and more incredibly courageous people, both men and women, confront their greatest fear and speak out about alleged incidents of abuse that they have experienced in and around the wrestling business. I use the word alleged purely for reasons of legality. To make it clear, we believe you. Using the hashtag speaking out, these people have found strength in numbers to step forwards and metaphorically unmask the perpetrators. Professional wrestling has always been about a battle of right versus wrong, of good versus evil, but this time it's real and it's the biggest fight this industry has ever faced in its life. People being mistreated and living in fear or humiliation has happened for far too long in professional wrestling. Sadly, it isn't a new thing, but we can all work together to make it an old thing and look forward to a brighter future for everyone who participates in this business, regardless of their identified gender, race, religion, sexual orientation or anything else. Both Lear and I here at Because WCW stand side by side with everybody who has been speaking out about this unacceptable and abusive culture. Together, we can change it. And together we will change it. Thank you. Look at the adjective. Play. I respect you, you. Fucker, man. And I have half the brain that you do.
1: Right, shot. I told you. Oh god now is the franchise huh. gonna take
0: the to put the in the seat. hello there wrestling fans and welcome to episode number 64 of because WCW the podcast where the big boys play my name is the twisted genius Dinaeus and I am joined as ever by my co-host, the sports columnist and editor of HookedOnWrestling.co.uk, Liam Hat. Hello, Liam. How are you doing?
1: How am I doing? I'm doing great. You just pronounced those all perfectly. Wow, I'm, I'm honoured. I'm privileged. Thank you very much, Dean. Uh, I just realised something. Uh, this is episode 64, right? Uh, that means the next episode we do will be number 65. Because WCW is one episode away from claiming a pension assuming that by the time we we get that episode recorded the government hasn't changed the pension age or anything like that
0: does that um, does that mean that yeah we can fall asleep midway through shows and and start making really bad jokes oh oh hang on. we we yeah we've already started making really bad jokes haven't we and the falling asleep yeah yeah, we, uh, we did have to postpone the recording a uh, watch long uh, a week or so ago because uh, I fell asleep on the sofa and uh, Liam was uh, trying to contact me and I wasn't responding. Yeah.
1: <laughs> to be fair, I won't mock you too much because that was on the Monday. Then on the Tuesday, you were ready to go and I was like, you know what, Dean, I can't be bothered. Can we push it back again?
0: <laughs> I think you said, uh, I'm not at the races today was your exact expression. Probably. But, yes. I,
1: I have... I have... There's so many days where I'm not at the races. I think I I am armed with a a great rotation of about 27 different ways of saying it. That may have been the ones I used on that particular day, and I am a fan of that one.
0: Well, so long as we are uh, at the races today and not flogging a dead horse, then we are ready to go. We have got ourselves a special guest, of a man who I have known for 20 i think 26 years or something like that um i would like to welcome here's the host of a brand new podcast that i've actually been a guest on myself so it's kind of like a podcast exchange here um here's the host of the podcast is it shane ritchie uh, i would like to welcome to because wcw carl stewart hello carl hello dean hello liam how are you both doing today i'm good thank you very good and you
2: yeah, very good, very good. Well, all things considered, you know.
0: Yes, it's uh, not been an easy week by any stretch of the imagination, but no. hopefully, we can uh, we can bring a bit of sunshine into people's lives this week by having a listen to this podcast. Indeed. So, um, yeah, it's it must be twenty six years since we first met. It's it's certainly along them lines. Yeah,
2: it's. Um, I mean, we told the story on my podcast about. You know first getting to know each other through the uh the tape trading scene of the uh the mid nineties and then meeting in person at Hamlock where you were the the resident m c at the time and I was an aspiring young twelve stone wrestler <laughs> many years ago now
0: many many years ago now before we go into your uh your wrestling background, tell us about this podcast and how it has the name of is it shane ritchie well um
2: I started the podcast, and this will be no surprise to anybody, because of the lockdown and because I had absolutely fuck all else to do.
0: It's golden age for podcasting, Liam.
2: Indeed, yes. uh, That's that's exactly what I meant, yes. Um, I didn't mean I'd fuck all else to do at all. Um, (laughs) But basically, I'd got fuck all else to do. Um, Yeah, um, because of what I do, I'm a a therapist. I work one-to-one with people. I am unable to work at the moment, so to pass a bit of time, I I sort of came up with the idea and saw that every man and his dog was starting a podcast, and I thought, well, if they can, I can. Fuck it, there's already enough shit out there, there might as well be some more. Um, And basically, the podcast is all about, it's, it's not about me, it's about some of the amazing characters that I've met in wrestling, and some of the incredible experiences i had with those people um and i'll have guests on sometimes and um yeah basically it's called is it shane ritchie because of a travel story that i told in the very first episode where we were going along and playing 20 questions on the road and basically i would ask the most ridiculous questions outright you know you would normally start off with say is it a man is it a woman etc cetera, etc cetera, to try and yeah. get clues to work out who the person was the other person was thinking of but i would come straight out and say is it paul merton <laughs> or and then follow that up with is it paul merton's uncle or is it paul merton's dad is it paul merton's auntie is it are they related to paul merton and my my travelling partner on that occasion just snapped and went, "Oh look, it's fucking Shane Ritchie, okay." <laughs> <laughs> so, in in, in honour of of that particular person, I um I, I decided to name it.
0: I, say, I I remember you also said about you would you would um the person that you would be making them think about was the person that they the previous player had just been. Because yeah, we, they, uh, they wouldn't think of them
2: yeah we went for about half an hour normally with that <laughs> and even though we'd done it on several occasions they they still wouldn't work out that that's what i was
0: doing so <laughs> oh the joys of life on the road so for those those uh people because i've i say we have a good proportion of our our listenership is uh, outside of the uk so those people who, who may not have um have encountered you, should we say? Yeah, what's what was your uh, your you're retired now, obviously, but what what did you do in the wrestling business?
2: Well, I mean, to be fair, people that have worked with me haven't heard of me, so um, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm really pushing it a bit. Um, I basically I was I was a wrestler for 16 years. I started in May '96 and went through to October '2012. I had my my final matches. Um, I was also a promoter, um, starting in 1999, and again, did my final shows in 2012. So it's, it's fair to say, you know, I, I experienced a lot of the, the, the UK scene at various times, working with various people. Yeah. Um, and despite everything that's sort of coming out just now, I, I had an absolute blast you know i i encountered some amazing people i encountered some not so amazing people but basically you know I, I i enjoyed my time and of course as i started you know as i mentioned earlier it's that's where i met you
0: indeed and um starting off with the wonderful ring name of cruising carlo s
2: indeed yeah as as i say it's just um that one was um, just the the best name I could think of with thirty seconds notice. To be honest, um, doesn't say a lot for my creative abilities, but uh, never believe, mind.
0: Yeah, I believe that was me in the interval walking up to you, going, "What's your name? I'm about to go out there to announce the second half, and I don't know what you're called."
2: <laughs> yeah, that was that was pretty much the exchange. Yes, because um,
0: you're you're in a uh, in the f- one of the famous Hammerlock show ending rumbles. No, no, no. That was the, no. the
2: the second night. The first night was uh um, winner stays on super oh, fight. Oh, the
0: super fight! Yes. Yeah. Yes. And yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, now. And you
2: were and you were very much involved in uh, the the uh, the story of that match. I remember.
0: Was I? Sounds yeah. about right.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know if we can tell it on here. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs>
0: As as I don't remember what it was, I uh, I don't know. Well, <laughs> go ahead, we can uh, we we can always edit it out of its unbroadcastable. Well, basically, it um,
2: <sighs> I came out and got on the microphone. I I attacked my opponent uh, beforehand, left him laying on the floor, and got in the ring, took the microphone, and started laying into the crowd, um, before settling on one particularly uh, bemused person who um, well, I went up to went sort of to the line um, went to with the line of uh, take this man here for example and I'm sure Dean probably would given half the chance and, I remember
0: that line now and the outraged reaction of the crowd
2: yeah and um, yes. the, the, the the particular man in you know especially um, as as he was trying to get in the ring, and you had to sort of hold him back while, uh, yeah.
0: It was, as we have said when reviewing old pay-per-views, it was a different time.
2: Indeed it was, yeah. Um, Although I can't quite claim to be of a generation in in my defense. (laughs) um. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right, this is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one, and you're listening to Because WCW. Now, choke on that
0: and um and what pay-per-view have you chosen to review today ah now
2: when you when you look back at some favorite shows uh you you've got you've got certain favorites that stand out because they've got great matches on them you've got certain ones that stand out because they're they're just great shows top to bottom they they blow off a lot of things they're they're real feel-good shows like SummerSlam 91 for example and then you've got shows which are absolute cack, but, <laughs> but sentimental favourites. And the show I've chosen is a real sentimental favourite of mine. And do, it's- do you mean it's absolute cack? Yes, I do mean it's absolute cack, <laughs> But it will always have a special place in my heart. Also and that show known is- as
1: the uh, Priscilla Picking Spring Stampede 2000 rationale.
0: Yes. Yeah
2: play i thought i was being unique but never mind sorry (laughs) oh well um yeah the show i've i've picked is
0: starcade 90 excellent and and why does this have a special place in your heart well as much as anything else
2: it was i i got into wrestling in the very late 80s um and there wasn't much in the way of videotapes or anything like that around at that time that you could buy in the UK. So my, one of my first um, videotapes that I bought was Starcade 90. It was part of that, um, that little first cavalcade of WCW shows that came out
0: probably early 91. I'm guessing. It was, it was either 90, I was it was either ninety one or ninety two. And I'll tell you why, because this this map this show is, is very fond memories, has very fond memories for me for very similar reasons. And I remember getting this tape bought for me by my mum and dad for my birthday. Um, now my birthday's in May and I was at school and I'm trying to think it would either yes, it would either be May ninety one or May ninety two. I'm not sure which. Uh ah. I I was airing on 92 but I might be wrong. I I've got a feeling that this
2: was part of that first lot that they released um yes. um along with WrestleWar 90 basically all the pay-per-views from that year. Yeah. Um and I I've got a feeling that that may have been 91. I'm I'm sure it may have been 91 in fact because I remember early ugh, I remember owning those quite early on into my fandom. Right. Um I know there was a second wave um later on which included Super Brawl One and various other things. Halloween Havoc ninety one, Starcade ninety one and going up going up into Super yeah. Brawl two and then them videos. But um yeah, this this was one of the first ones that I owned. So I pretty much wore the tape out watching this.
0: How how unfortunate. What <laughs> What I have, no, yeah, and what, what I did notice, we'll get to this um, when we we go through the, the pay per view, but there's there's a lot of, um, should we say, pageantry that uh, was edited out of the um, the VHS copy. So um, I was blissfully unaware of a lot of the things that went on here, which we'll, we will cover. But, um, but anyway, if, uh, if you are sitting comfortably, then we shall uh, we should begin our journey through Starcade 90. So we are in the famous old Kiel Auditorium in St. Louis, Missouri, which is the site of several world heavyweight title changes over the years in one of America's most historically significant wrestling cities. The venue itself would close the following year, but Right now, we're closing out a momentous year of change for WCW with its biggest show of the year, Starcade 1990. And Liam, as we, we like to do these days, how how had we got to this point in WCW history?
1: Well, f- speaking from a Because WCW episode standpoint, you'll remember a couple of years ago, we looked at the Great American Bash '90. Which itself was a seminal one, that was Sting's crowning moment, beating Ric Flair in the main event. And now you fast forward six months, and his title reign hasn't exactly gone how WCW had hoped. As has been documented about the Stinger, he's he's definitely a a franchise player, an all-time great, one of those very memorable, marketable wrestlers, but as far as single-handedly drawing a massive house, he always fell short of that aspiration, so... Uh, business didn't go quite as good as they'd hoped and couple that with the fact that I believe Ole Anderson was not making many friends as Booker in the year of 1990 and the writing was on the wall either just before or just after this pay-per-view. He was out. It would be uh, Dusty Rhodes taking over once he took care of a little bit of, of business and saw out his deal over at WWE, the WWF at the time. And we are here on the premise of the infamous Black Scorpion angle. And it was only a matter of time before we were looking at this, weren't we? Um, I'm yeah. very
2: sorry.
0: No,
1: don't don't <laughs> apologise. Instantly, um,
0: episode 18 was where we uh, looked over the great American bash, 1990. Yeah, but there's, so, uh,
1: there's no need for an apology. If you didn't, someone else was going to drag us over the coals. We've, we've been made by guests to watch Bash at the Beach '99 with the Junkyard Battle Royal, Uncensored '96 with the oh. Triple Cage Tower of Doom. Basically, our dearest friends and colleagues in the industry clearly hate our guts. So clearly. if they didn't apologise, Carl, I don't see why you should start now. Um, in fact, uh,
0: even even our own listeners hate our guts because when we um put us we put the um a poll up before. Asking them to um, vote which pay-per-view to cover, and and they they basically just chose the one that was utter pony.
2: Yeah. Well, in that case, I'm not sorry. Then bollocks.
0: Fair enough. <laughs> and um and yeah, the the black scorpion. So this was, if memory serves me right, this was just a, a mysterious masked man who was making life hell for Sting. And various different people dressed as the Black Scorpion would turn up at various different shows, all voiced by Oli Anderson with a a voice synthesizer. synthesizer.
1: Yeah, well, one of the problems for Sting, and I suppose this is backed up by the fact that he would help do really good business for WCW seven years later opposite Hulk Hogan and the New World Order uh one of the big problems with his first run was that he didn't really have much in the way of a foil and as you guys know that's very important in, in running a program and getting people to want to show up and pay for a ticket so they had to move on from rick flair rick flair passed the torch and if they were going to bring it back you got you, you, ideally you're going to give that some breathing space first so they need someone else to be that heel in the program with sting and they realized oh, Maybe as soon as the Great American Bash was finished, they seemed to realise, oh wait, we don't actually have anyone to run up against him. So they decided to go with the the mystery angle, the whodunit style thing of someone making all these vowed uh, references and these little... Uh, promises and things like that Stuff about training with Sting Back in the day Knowing him from California All these little hints and clues That would suggest it's someone from his past To put in that intrigue That a big skeleton's going to fall out of his closet And confront him Which, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's storytelling 101 When done right, former, does work
0: Former tag team partner Was also mentioned uh, yeah. uh, on the uh, graphics And, and I, I seem to remember at the time Obviously not not knowing how contracts worked that One of the rumours was it was going to be the ultimate warrior because obviously they'd broken into wrestling together in california
1: well if that's what they were trying to hint at with some of these it certainly wouldn't be the last time that wcw used the ultimate warrior in a shameless bait and switch clearly because we had we had the renegade show up on the last nitro watch along
0: indeed we did (laughs) yes
1: but, uh, yeah, if done right, that whole thing can be done quite well. One problem, if done right, this is WWE, right. for fuck's sake. <laughs> so, that's where problem is. They spent oh, six shit. months doing this storyline, and the whole time, they didn't actually know who was going to be the man. When they got to Starcade, they realised that if they didn't pay off a six-month thing... At Starcade, which, as you guys have already mentioned, is known as being a—you uh, a, know—it's a blow-off show. It's where things are resolved. People pay because they're—they're going to get a big resolution, an end of a big story arc here. And if they didn't finish this off here, it was going to dent people's trust in Starcade as a—as yeah. a, as a marquee. So they had to do something here, and as usual, they went to the guy who's bowled the National Wrestling Alliance and Jim Crockett Promotions out time after time after time. But I won't spoil it for now. I will not spoil his identity for the two of our six listeners who are not quite sure yet.
0: Um, we're bound to spoil it before the
1: unmasking, don't worry. You listeners. are bound to spoil it. You I are, am the heel. spot.
0: So, um, as usual with Starcade, they just can't leave it alone. It's never just a regular wrestling card. And this year, we have the... First annual Pat O'Connor Memorial Tag Team Tournament with an international field. So Pat O'Connor had passed away in August of that year. He was from New Zealand, but he made his name in the States where he was the inaugural AWA World Heavyweight Champion and a former NWA World Heavyweight Champion, too. So what better way to pay tribute to a former singles champion than with a tag team tournament? An annual tag team tournament, that is, that never happens again. Um, so this very old school feel in the darkened arena, our commentary team of Jim Ross and a very excitable sounding Paul E. Dangerously. Um, And the main event will see world champion Sting battle the Black Scorpion, as we discussed, inside the steel cage with Dick the Bruiser as a special guest referee. Uh, Before we begin the matches, ring announcer Gary Michael Capetta introduces the legendary St. Louis promoter Sam Muchnick. An emotional Muchnick takes the microphone, which was working absolutely fine a moment ago, and now no one can hear him. Someone in the truck bumps the levels up on the sound desk about 10 seconds later wcw never did very well with their microphones did they um we then have a display of colors whatever that means from the marines and the u.s national anthem And at this point i'm thinking can we please just get on with the fucking show so match number one our opener is Bobby Eaton v Tom Zenk, and the bloody WWE Network has changed Eaton's familiar Midnight Express music due to copyright reasons it's just not the same this is Eaton's first singles match on pay per view following the acrimonious departure of Jim Ross and Stan Lane from WCW following Halloween Havoc a couple of months ago we're also told that Ric Flair has withdrawn from the World Tag Team title match due to injuries suffered in a limousine attack that must have happened prior to the show taking place, although eventually we do get shown a clip of it, he will be replaced by fellow horseman Barry Windham. So it's interesting to hear dangerously praising Eaton's ability given that they would be together in the Dangerous Alliance stable a year later. An Eaton monkey flips his zinc land on his feet and blast Eaton with a pair of drop kicks for a two count. The pace of this match is somewhat deliberate, and it's different to the philosophy of opening a pay-per-view that we'd see five or six years later. Um, Eaton throws Zenk onto the ramp and then tries to suplex him back in, but Zenk counts it and suplexes Eaton on the hard ramp, follows this with a cross-body block over the top rope onto the ramp. Back in the ring, Zenk whips Eaton into the corner, charges in, gets caught with a back elbow. Um, later on, Eaton counters Zenk with a swinging neck breaker, but his next move off the top rope is countered as he's caught mid air with a kick. Zenk then scales the ropes himself, but misses his patented top rope drop kick. Eaton waits for Zenk to get to his feet before he hooks him up in a small package for a of pinfall victory in 8 minutes 45. And after all their signature offense failed to get the win for either man, maybe a slightly strange or slightly. Uh, subpar finish to that one. But Carl, what did you think of that match?
2: Well, first of all, I mean anything involving Bobby Eaton is something I I like tremendously. Um, these two had uh, previous, you know, they, they had the, the tag team run earlier in the year. Um I'm not as down on Zenk as a lot of people are. I mean he's he's not brilliant, but I, I, don't, I don't think he's as bad as people make out. And I think given the, the right opponent and the right situation, he, he can actually, you know, put together something reasonable as, as we saw here. Uh, I I think it did its job. You know, it um, it, this crowd all night was, was very enthusiastic, especially given the, the shower of shit that they had to endure most of the night. Um, so yeah, I, I think it did its job, you know, um, One one notable ricket, I thought, you know, where Bobby Eaton's coming off the ropes and uh, Zink. It looks like Zink starts to go for a drop down and then sort of pulls out halfway, and Eaton hits him with a tackle, and it's all a little bit
0: Mm.
2: all a little bit messed up. Um, Eaton's punches were fantastic, and that was that was something I picked up on watching him early on. You know, was just. They they looked like they were just tearing a, a guy's head off. Um, something else um, about this match. Um, with with a lot of things in wrestling, um, it's the little things, the little details that can either make or break something.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
2: And <sighs> WCW at this time, <sighs> the production and various aspects of the production. When you look at what the WWF was churning out at this time, those little details really do make it stand out as something lower than the WWF. Now, I, I say that with all the love in the world for early 90s WCW, because I am a massive fan of early 90s WCW. But those little touches, I mean, in this instance, the thing I picked up on was the, the Starcade stats, which um an interesting little thing, you know adds adds yeah. a little something to it in again, in theory. Um, they pick up on the fact that um Bobby Eaton is billed from the dark side um, and formally from Huntsville, Alabama. and yes. that that seems very, very odd to me. It, it's It's like billing someone you know from parts unknown, but formerly from Lemington Spa, <laughs> it, 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 why? I mean, the Bobby Eaton is a guy that I mean, if if you're going to use that thing of trying to make them sound mysterious or Bobby Eaton's been on the TV for the previous five years or whatever. Everybody knows he's from Huntsville, Alabama. Why, why is he suddenly from the dark side in the first place? It's it's one of them weird things. Maybe that's just me being a bit OCD. I
0: don't know. No, it's a it's a it's a valid point. It's a yeah. It, it was a strange, um, a strange thing to to say, but definitely. Um, Liam, anything to add to this before we we go into the uh, art of the opener as we always like to? <laughs>
1: well, I have to say I disagree with you on the finish. I kind of liked it. When you think about when two guys go out there and trade their best stuff and can't get the finish, and then it comes down to the fundamentals as snaring in a in a cradle after a mistake it really portrays the two guys as being on the same level and protects them to a certain extent and competitive matches like that i i feel are really productive to the fan we don't perceive someone as being out of their depth or anything like that uh, And when you always hear these these fears from internet wrestling communities of, of oh yeah this guy has been buried you, nobody ever really says that after a hard fought match like this it's only when someone is, is, is maybe puffed up a little bit and then gets trounced and sent on their merry way. It's like, why the fuck did you do that? But no, I, I appreciate this finish like that. And also, this whole thing they're going on about with the, the Tom Zink undefeated streak, um, it turns out, with a, with a little bit of research um yeah he this 35 match winning streak according to the history of wwe.com he lost in a tag match alongside alan iron eagle against the master blasters on november 25th in greensboro so that's another time that kevin nash has fucked up a streak
0: (laughs) it's a good point well made definitely now one thing we often talk about on on this uh paper on this podcast is as we call it the art of the opener and i know from uh well, from listening to your podcast and from just from knowing you in, in real life that carl you are someone who has worked more openers than average it's fair to say and, and proudly so
2: absolutely yeah i mean it's it's such an in- important spot on the card and I always used to laugh at people who would sort of balk at being asked to go on and curtain jerk, if you like. Um, I, I loved going on first. It was uh, in the end, I sort of built a career out of going on first, um, and sort of specializing in that opening match. You know, you, we talked about, you know, there, there are many different ways to open a show. Um, and I was, I was booked specifically by people to do that opening match on their show. So, um, yeah, I mean you, you in my case, you know, I I could go out there and put together a basic wrestling match, work the crowd, get them into it and set them up for the rest of the show.
0: And um what what kind of uh opener have we had here then would you say? I I think it's um it's uh
2: it, it, you had both guys I mean putting in their their, their signature stuff but i mean you they did they did build uh they did temper that with some mat wrestling with some they you know it's uh, it, it's very much a a low match on the card if you like um it's how can i put this it it's your basic wrestling opener really mm-hmm. uh there wasn't a massive amount of crowd work um, but the crowd, as I said, were enthusiastic anyway. Um, and they, it was funny to see uh, the crowd were quite divided, actually. There was a, a certain section that would pop for Zenk's offence. And there was another quite distinct section that would pop for Eaton's big moves. So I thought that was quite interesting. I think the, the female fans were going for Zenk's offence and the, uh, the male fans were popping for Bobby
0: Eaton's spectacular stuff. And his spectacular mullet. I mean, that was. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay, thank you very much. So, um, moving on, Tony Schiavone introduces Dick the Bruiser, who still looks and sounds terrifying. He says that he's never lost a cage match in his life, but promises that Sting will get a fair shake and that he'll keep order in the match um gary Capet, michael capetta then introduces the parade of nations of flags of the participating countries in the tournament so we have the huge trophy brought out by two referees and uh, at this point capetta declares that the winners will be crowned the greatest team in the universe yet quite unfairly only countries on earth have been allowed in um, we then see a parade of models in little black dresses walking up and down the ramp holding a large flag of each country, and Japan gets booed nice. This was basically a complete waste of time and money because, you know, those models wouldn't come for free. However, we then have the first of our quarterfinals. It is the South African team of Colonel de Klerk and Sergeant Kruger. They're the number eight seeds taking on the Steiner brothers. So... Colonel de Klerk and Sergeant Kruger are as South African as I am. The creative geniuses in WW have taken the name of the sitting South African president at the time, F.W. de Klerk, and the most famous historic president, Paul Kruger, who the Kruger round is named after, and given them to this team. Colonel de Klerk is actually Ted Petty, who most famously went on to become Flyboy Rocco Rock of Public Enemy a few years later. And Sergeant Kruger is Ray Apollo, who became the third incarnation of doink the clown in wwf they're both from new jersey by the way not south africa um jim ross identifies the clerk as being the one with the beard despite the fact that they both have beards they're uh, the outside number eight seeds as i said the Steiners has come out to the u.s national anthem and a big ovation they are the current reigning u.s tag team champions at this moment in time obviously that is not uh up for grabs. The South Africans start off fast with a back suplex by Kruger on Rick, but Rick quickly takes charge with a steiner line. De Klerk knocks Rick out of the ring with a nice-looking spin kick, but then tries to flip plancher to the floor, which is reasonably unheard of at this point in time. Um, Rick, however, just stands there, doesn't catch him, steps back, and De Klerk looks like he lands on the back of his head. The camera doesn't really pick it up, with Rick kind of holding his ankles. Um, Rick's line just stands there, grinning in. Nice. Um, Scott gets tagged in, hits Paul Klerk with a Hilterwell slam to a big pop. He single signals for the Frankensteiner, lands that, and they get the quick squash pinfall in just two minutes, 12 seconds. Carl? Uh,
2: not really a lot to add to this one, actually. I mean... It's a squash, much- isn't it? Basically, yeah. Um, although, you having said about the, the dive over the top... I did notice Rick Steiner go down and check on him afterwards, which was uh, yes,
0: he did do that. Yes, fair play. Which, which,
2: which, which was unusual for a guy that just basically, you know, smashed a guy's head off the floor. Um, yeah. What else can I
0: say? But we uh, we did get a for a, a precursor, a forerunner of the aerial antics of uh, Rocco Rock, I guess.
2: Yeah, and uh, great Frankensteiner as well to finish the match.
0: Indeed, yes. Uh, anything to add to that one, Liam?
1: Yeah, I, I realise that there's a lot of these tag team tournament matches we're going to get through and yeah, you know, it's very Vince Russo-esque with so many bloody matches on the card. But I'm actually kind of wishing that one went longer. Just, you know, when you have, I think it's typical Steiner Brothers stuff when you have such good offence, you can just watch them beat up a couple of stiffs all, all show long, really. Uh, in, this, in this instance, obviously we've got a lot to get through But if, if every squash match on the show Every like filler opening round match or whatever is like that you, it's, it's not going to be a difficult watch Similar to what we say about some of the matches we've been doing on the Nitro watch Where they're not classics, they're, they're sub-five minutes But they're easy to watch and they don't mm. drain you If you can do that, fair enough Although maybe not on a bloody pay-per-view But at least <laughs> this wasn't terrible
0: Indeed. Okay, so move on. That's number three. It's our second quarterfinal. It is Chris Adams and Norman Smiley representing Great Britain versus Conan and Rey Mysterio. So at least these are all genuine. Adams is, of course, well known from his days of worlds of sport before moving to the States in the 80s. Norman Smiley was born in Northampton, but emigrated to the USA as a child. And his build here is from Antigua in the West Indies, rather confusingly. But to be fair, he has always identified as being British. Um, They come out to the always catchy, God save the Queen, British National Anthem. Um, Conan is still masked at this point in his career, and apparently he had um, seriously injured his one of his knees um, a few days before this, and was told uh, not to wrestle for three months, but decided to wrestle anyway, because he didn't want to miss out on the opportunity of being on pay-per-view. Uh, Rey Mysterio is the original. He is the uncle of Rey Mysterio Jr., but he is listed on the on-screen caption uh, as Ray Mysteric, which is what J.R. calls him at some points of this match. I'm guessing someone has misread someone else's handwriting there. They are described in the on-screen notes as having a unique wrestling style, i.e. Lucha Libre, before that really became known in America, which at least Smiley is familiar with through his work in Mexico. Um, Adams connects with his superkick within the first minute, which tells us this isn't going very long um smiley's doing the fast moving lucha style while adams is matt wrestling and playing to his strengths mysterio tumbles to the floor and catches his elbow on the ring steps while adams superkicks conan into the beautiful bridging german suplex from smiley for a two count Uh, Jim Ross, now this is me being pedantic, I do apologise, but Jim Ross talks about how Adam's brother, that's Neil Adams, represented England in the 1984 Olympics, despite the fact that it's Great Britain and not England that compete in the Olympics. That's like me saying that Jim Ross represented Oklahoma in the Olympics rather than the United States. Sorry, had to get that in. Um, Smiley is hoisted up to the top rope. Conan hits him with an inverted suplex. He then hooks his legs up as a sort of a rolling reverse cradle without the roll. And gets the three count in five minutes and 29 seconds as Mysterio knocks Adams off of the ring apron to stop the pinfall being broken up. Then, for no apparent reason, after the match, Mysterio attempts a planture to the floor, which isn't caught by the camera or seemingly caught by Adams, judging by the thump heard as he smacks on the floor. Um, so, um, Oh, and Mysterio is also then announced as Rey mysterioso as he lies prone on the floor looking like he might be injured. Um, so, yes, whatever's left of them will be battered by the Steiners in the semifinals. Carl, what do you think of this one?
2: Well, this, this is kind of uh, the start of a running theme here with uh, a lot of these international teams where the, the commentators basically don't know who the fuck they are. And it, it kind of shows because, obviously, you just mentioned Ray Mysteric, Ray Mysterioso. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of these things. I mean, how, how does that make your promotion look? How does that, that make the wrestlers look? You know, I mean, it, you, you need to put across. I mean, don't, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not burying Jim Ross here by any means. But you have to put across these guys as being something big. You know something worth watching, and if you don't even know their fucking name, then what does that say, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, but I thought the match itself, um, it, I enjoyed parts of it. Uh, as with a lot of these uh, tournament matches, they're they're quite disjointed, really, and I think you can kind of put that down to the different styles and how maybe they uh, they clash in a way. Um, this was actually one of the things that drew me to this show as a young kid watching this match. Uh, sorry, watching this show. Um, was the fact that all of these different countries had their own unique wrestling styles, mm. which I think is, is lost a little bit nowadays because everything's, you know, sort of more of a hybrid kind of, you know, it's, it's much of a muchness um, yeah. with everyone drawing on various influences from around the world. But, I mean, back at that time you did get that kind of unique style from each place if each different place in the world and that was that was very very appealing to me as a young wrestling fan and it made me actually that may have been the the catalyst for me to seek out different wrestling from around the world
0: oh cool okay
2: um yeah. i mean chris adams in this match i i, I think was was a great shout And looking at the people that they were working with, the Mexicans, I think Norman Smiley was probably a good shout in that role as well. Even though on the face of it, you know, you can think of much more deserving, if you like, British wrestlers to stick into that role at this time. I mean, with the guys that were still around at that time. Mm. Oh, yeah. but I mean, I, as a promoter as well, I understand the logistics of using people from within continental America rather than flying people. Absolutely. in.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Your your uh, expenses are going to be a lot, a lot less.
2: Yeah. But no, I, I I enjoyed the match. I think the finish looked a bit odd. To be honest, I, I think it's. Um, I, I don't think the the reverse suplex really
0: worked. Um, yeah. and 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 what happened after the match as well that was even more bizarre
2: yeah um fuck no (laughs) so I don't know if if that was if that was meant to be I mean this seems to be a running theme as well you know people sort of wiping out on dives over the ropes I I, I, I don't know what the plan was on that that, whether that was planned or whether he just thought fuck it let's you know let's put something else in and but no idea. He,
0: he, he does look to be legitimately injured from that as well.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he looks um, like he's really smacked his leg off the uh, the steps or um, whatever he's done. But, yeah. Um, yeah, very, very, very strange. Very Lynn?
1: strange. Well, I'll tell you what, his first two tag tournament matches, we would be having the makings of a cracking episode of early Nitro. Because the, the the pace is carrying on, you know. They have the whole phrase of, of, of "get my shit in" <laughs> that you hear some people use is uh, very much in effect. But it's 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 not dull at least. But one thing that does alarm me about this, the you know, this what the third match on the card, and um, already the crowd have kind of gone a little bit, mm. uh, and it's telling that this you, you know people watching the TV shows will they'll know beautiful Bobby they'll know Tom Zink they'll know the Steiner brothers so fair enough and the first match we've got here with no real TV presence building up to this uh, the fans just are completely out of it which suggests that the tournament as an entity unto itself has no value to this crowd and that's the risk you run when you try these experimental things and it just shows that without the names it's absolutely nothing
0: well, they did um, They did a similar sort of thing a few years later with the NWA Tag Team Tournament, didn't they? Where they had some teams from around the world. I remember, um, I think that was the first time we'd seen the Milenko brothers and they had, um, I'm sure they had a Mexican team there as well. And that again had limited, shall we say, crowd reactions because of it.
1: Yeah, that, that was early in the Bill Watts era, remember, and that was, That's one of, right, yeah. that was one of Watts' very first acts as part of his methodical plan to legitimate sport the entire audience to death. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, well, we then go to Missy Hyatt, who's interviewing the man of a thousand gimmicks, Michael Wall Street um aka mike Rotunda and irs um with Alexandra york Ms. york's computer has predicted that wall street will defeat opponent terry taylor in less than eight minutes 32 we then go straight to match number three our third or match number four i think that is our third um quarterfinal, the Royal Family versus Mr. Saito and the Great Muta. So, uh, the Royal Family are an established WCW tag team, albeit on the lower rung of Jack Victory, or Jacko Victory as he's called here, um, who is American and as far as I'm aware has never been to New Zealand, and Rip Morgan, who like Pat O'Connor himself, is a legitimate Kiwi who came over to the US. Saito is a former AWA World Heavyweight Champion and a former Olympian he's 48 years old by this point in time but still looks absolutely hard as nails Mutar is of course very well known to WCW fans and competed at the previous year's Starcade um, Ross does say that Victory was born in the US but now resides in New Zealand um, Mutar drop kicks Victory out of the ring to the ramp then dives onto him from the top rope the match then goes back and forth somewhat unspectacularly except for Mutar's trademark spots which the crowd recognise from his previous WCW run other than that this match is happening for a pretty much silent crowd uh, Morgan misses a middle rope leg drop on Saito that allows Mutar in, he hits the handspring elbow on victory to a big pop, Morgan accidentally clotheslines victory who stumbles back into a German suplex from Mutar, which he just about holds for the pinfall victory in 5 minutes 41 seconds, Carl, your thoughts on this one well, this was one where
2: there was never any doubt about who was going over. So yeah. the, the crowd just didn't really seem to care. Um, they they popped for Muta. They they popped for Muta's flashy moves. Um, and the there was a bit of a, a botch on the finish with the German suplex, where um, you see on the replay, actually the second replay, that the uh, the ref actually has to. Help uh, victory's shoulder into position and hold it there for like the for counting the pin, um, which is an interesting replay to show. Given again, it comes down to that production thing again. Mm. You know, d- don't show a replay that's going to expose what you do.
0: Well, we we saw that on Starcade '97 with um, Eric Bischoff and uh, Larry Zabisco match in our very first episode. So at least they've got uh, at least they're consistent. You know.
2: Mm. Uh, I mean, nothing. Nothing really more to add to that. I mean, it was it was nice to see a dive where the person doing the dive didn't hurt themselves.
0: Um, <laughs> yes, but uh, you know, I'm also I'm thinking when we are talking previously about you know Rey Mysterio and Rey Mysteric, because I think they they do correct it for the for the um, semi final, and it it's something that as when I've been commentating and obviously we don't have you know on screen TV TV captions live that's all done. Post production generally, but I'll go up and talk to the person. Even so, the best example I think is with you know, Jap- if we have Japanese wrestlers, now there's obviously a language barrier there, but the most important thing for me is to know what their name is, i.e., how to pronounce their name. Mm-hmm. And so I'll speak to them backstage. Then I'll go to the ring announcer and tell them, this is how you pronounce it. Or if I get notes um, about a wrestler's background, their height, their weight, their finishes, all that sort of thing, the MC normally, I mean, normally it'd be on the shows I work, it'd be someone like Chris Hatch, who's a great pro himself, who will come over and read my notes so that we're literally reading off the same page. Uh-huh. And its it's just... It's elementary, really, isn't it? It's. I always you would remember. You think so. Yeah, you'd think so. Exactly. I always remember when um, the very first time I ever went on um Talk Sport Talk Wrestling Show, I was just a, a guest there, and it was when Tommy Boyd was hosting it, and it was um, I'd just come back from uh, WrestleMania in Toronto, so they were talking to me about the experience of of that, and I remember he he checked before we went on air. He checked what my name was, how you pronounce my surname, where I'd just come back from. And, uh, and he told a story that he was once interviewing uh, Margaret Thatcher um, while she was prime minister. And he said, I uh, hope you don't mind, um, but I always do this with everybody. He goes, it's Margaret Thatcher, prime minister of Great Britain. And she leaned over to him and went, young man, it's good to see someone doing a proper job. And was absolutely fine with him asking that. And that's how it should be done. Mm -hmm. Um, Liam, anything to add to this match?
1: Well, I don't have a great deal to add about the match. But I do have my own little anecdote about the... Because I I remember I've done a little bit of uh, local football commentary. And I yeah. remember actually sitting down with some other commentators for half an hour before a pre season friendly pitting Charlton Athletic against FC Den Bosch of the Netherlands just to make sure we had all of those names absolutely down pat and yeah it's just another insight to, you know if you, if you want to do a proper job you, you absolutely can it can take a little bit of time sometimes especially when there's 11 or 16 of the bastards but <laughs> but yes um, <laughs> As for the match, this is this is where I'm really starting to formulate the theory that they should have done the quarterfinals on TV to promote the semis and the final on the pay-per-view because it's getting old fast and we're, we're not even halfway through the bracketology.
0: Oh mate, you think that's bad? Strap yourselves in, then it's the it's the uh, last quarterfinal. We right, have... Nice
1: seeing you, everyone. Take it easy. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. Bye. <laughs>
0: We have Danny Bull Johnson and Troy Montour from Canada versus the Soviet Union team of Salman Hashimikov and Viktor Zangiev. So this would be... I think this must be like months before the Soviet Union dissolved. Um, It's very odd that out of all the wrestlers coming out of Canada, and you think about the number of great independent Canadian wrestlers at this time, WCW chose to use these two. Um, Ross says that they won the presumably fictitious Canadian tournament to get here in a major upset. Um, Johnson is a chunky Native American wearing a feather headdress as he comes to the ring. There's limited information out there about them um, or about him I should say Johnson appears to have been a bit of a jobber in international wrestling which I believe was the Rougeau family promotion in Montreal and there is literally nothing that I can find on Troy Montour other than that he was from Toronto this is the only match of his I can find listed anywhere in the world Um, Zangiev is a former silver medalist in Freestyle Wrestling World Cup and apparently was the inspiration for the character of Zangiev in Street Fighter 2. He also has the worst cauliflower ear I've ever seen in my life and is the hairiest man alive. Hashimikov is a four-time former world champion in Freestyle Wrestling. He looks hard as nails as well. He beat Big Van Vader to win the IWGP World Heavyweight Title which he held for a mere 48 days in 1989 before dropping it to Ricky Choshu. Um, both had been doing pro wrestling in Japan for about a year and a half at this point in time, mostly winning tag team matches against far more experienced opponents. They stopped wrestling shortly after this show, and then they resurfaced in UWFI in Japan in 1993. So Zangiev immediately takes Johnson down and ties him up in a bow and arrow hold. He doesn't release it or do anything more with it, so Montor enters the ring to break it up. Zangiev does an amazing escape from head scissors, which shows off his neck strength and agility. He then legitimately belly-to-belly suplexes Johnson, who doesn't go over with it and nearly lands on his head. Both men then tag out, and it's Hashimikov versus Montour now. Within seconds, Hashimikov suplexes Montor and just holds his shoulders down. The ref counts to two and then very hesitantly counts to three to give the Soviet team the win in three minutes and 54 seconds. And, well, this was just one of the weirdest matches you're ever likely to see. That definitely, I'm sure, was not supposed to be the finish, judging by the time it happened in the match and the referee's reaction. Um, And I'm not even sure if the Soviets had been told that this tournament was a work, to be honest. The Canadian team don't look happy at all. They're trying to confront their opponents, but the referee blocks them off. And again, we had a silent crowd throughout the whole match. Um, Carl, what did you make of this clusterfuck?
2: (laughs) I have been waiting to get to this match um being the obsessive wrestle crap connoisseur that i am i did a little bit of research a couple of years ago on this canadian team all right and and because this is something that had been bugging me for years just the question who the fuck are these two
0: because you've i mean you've toured canada haven't you although it's different there's totally the other end of canada wasn't it from well i was
2: yeah, I was over the, the western side of Canada. We we never made it as far over as Toronto. Fair enough. Um, yeah, we were in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And I, I did actually ask my, my contacts out there, and they didn't have a fucking clue about who they were either. And I couldn't find very much. But tellingly, the one thing I did find was a picture of Danny Ball Johnson. Right. Now, Danny Ball Johnson, of course being the guy in the Indian headdress, right? Yep. No. Danny Ball Johnson was the other guy, the taller guy with the black trunks, who the commentators referred with to the entire match as Troy Montour.
0: The one with the um, handlebar moustache?
2: Yes, the very same. So, if the again, if the commentators don't even know who the fuck these people are, who are they? Where have they come from? <laughs> Where have, how have they got this gig on a, a major pay per view? I, I just found it unbelievable that, it, it, yeah, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. You know, it's uh, when, you, as, as you say, when when you've got the likes of Owen Hart, Chris Benoit, even Bruce Hart. You know, if you wanted to put a Hart brothers tag team together for this, you know, oh. it's oof, who the fuck are these people? it's it...
0: I mean this this is the bizarre thing Canada isn't exactly short of wrestlers and no. and good wrestlers at that I mean Stampede was finished by this point
2: there was um there was a new promotion that had taken over their TV slot and it's the promotion that uh, Lance Storm and Chris Jericho were working for at this time they were about I think a month or two into their professional careers mm-hmm. Um but I I I've just no idea who the fuck these people are and clearly nobody else does either I mean somebody must have known them for them to get the gig in the first place so
0: yeah and do you know what the really weird thing is was that when I was typing my these these notes up I originally said that Montour was the guy in the in the um Native American headdress and then I thought to myself, is that right? And checks back, and based on the commentary, switched it around to say it was Johnson. So actually, unwittingly, I was right all along.
2: Yeah, I mean, when, I mean that isn't an issue, because nobody knows who the fuck they are anyway, watching. But, um, I mean, what, what does it say for the organisation within that promotion? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, um, in terms of the match itself, it, it was bizarre, I mean, I, I thought Zangief or Zangief or however you pronounce it, is was especially sort of nice and crisp on the map. I, I thought fantasy booking, I thought maybe switching it round and having the, the Russians work with someone like the Eng, an English team of maybe John Cortez and Keith Hayward would have been fantastic to watch. But, oh. um, yeah, the the match itself, I mean... This has to be one of the most disjointed, strange matches that you'll ever see, as you said. I mean, and I've, I've written on my notes, worst war dance ever. <laughs> and whether the, the finish was meant to be the finish or <sighs> whether the Canadians had just was. had enough, I, I've no fucking idea, frankly.
0: Because it happens so quickly, because... um they'd literally just made the double tag to have Hashimikov and what we thought was Montour, but it's clearly <laughs> Johnson in, in the ring. It's like literally the first move. So he has literally taken one bump on pay-per-view and now his match is over.
2: Uh-huh. No, it just, doesn't
0: make any sense for that to be the finish. Just very, very bizarre. Liam, have you recovered from this match?
1: Oh, man, do do you know what the absolute kicker on top of everything you guys have covered there is the fact that on this very show, WCW are absolutely happy and content to wax creative and say, you know what, Uh, members of the public enemy can be from South Africa. Um, Jack Victory can be from New Zealand. But apparently when it came to Canada, they had to be absolutely by the book and bring in some guys who had no idea how to sell their opponent's offense. And that's, that, that's the light side of the theory. The other side of the theory is that, yeah, they're absolutely just being completely shot on. But, um, yeah, you think if they're, if they're willing to just make it up as they go along with certain nationalities, they could have just... Bring out Jack Victory again. <laughs> J- Jacques.
0: Jacques
1: Jacques, Jacques Victoire. Fuck yeah, he he developed such a good cult reputation for being an absolute, you know, utility dog's body everyman, which was part of his charm. When he finally got a bit of notoriety for himself in ECW, Uh, what the whole idea was, he'd he'd spent his whole career just being everything, and. Yeah, you might as well have him pull double duty if you're in this situation. But you mentioned about, like, yeah, Benoit is around and wasn't there a tag team? It might be in the tag team tournament you referenced from 92. But I'm pretty sure there was a case very soon after this of Chris Benoit and Biff Wellington. Yes. The the colleague and friend of Benoit's who eerily died on the same, the day, same day. The same day.
0: Yeah, it's the NWA. Yeah, the NWA tournament. It was those two tagging up. Yeah. Because that led to Benoit
1: getting a few shots with WCW, and they dithered and then he went to ECW, and then in '95 they actually thought to themselves, "Yeah, we really should sign him," and he was there full time. So yeah, th- there were so many moves they could have done, and they've already contradicted themselves. With the fact that they're willing to just pretend all these Americans are from somewhere else, but no, to play it by the book here, and it's led to absolute
2: catastrophe.
0: Didn't you work with him in Canada, Carl? Uh, yes, I did.
2: He was uh, an, no, I won't. <laughs> um, yes, I did. Um, he, he wasn't my favourite person. It's fair to say. Um,
0: should, should we leave it there, Carl? Uh,
2: yeah, I, I, th- I think we probably should. <laughs>
0: we go backstage everyone we go backstage where Tony Schiavone is interviewing Sting he vows to find out who the black scorpion is tonight. He sounds lower key and more determined than his usual promos. It's then time for match number six, Terry Taylor versus Michael Wall Street with Alexandra York. And, uh, some old bloke whose name I couldn't catch is our guest ring announcer. So they must be spending an absolute fortune on guests that they don't need on this pay-per-view. Um, it seems that no one apart from Capetta knows how to use this microphone. Wall Street, as as we mentioned uh, previously, he is my, it's, it is Mike Rotunda's latest gimmick. Alexandra York, of course, went on to become Marlena um, Goldust's valet in the WWF. So Taylor attacks Wall Street before he can get his suit off. There's a clock running down from eight minutes 32, as that's the time that a victory was predicted by the computer. Um, apparently, Wall Street was recently featured in USA Today. I have no idea if that actually happened or not. Um, this is a reasonably unspectacular plodding match. About five minutes in, Taylor takes control with some slightly heavier offence, such as backdrops and body slams. All his covers get two counts. He hits his patented five-arm, but Wall Street is too close to the ropes and gets his foot on the bottom rope taylor then charges in and gets a stun gun onto the top rope wall street hits the samoan drop which he calls the wall street crash great name for the pin in six minutes 52 seconds exactly a minute and a half inside his predicted time limit carl what are your thoughts on this one i this was an interesting one because I enjoy
2: seeing two guys um, that can do the basics very well. Um, these guys were both solid in what they did. They were good mechanics in the ring, uh, but, but I think both kind of lacked those intangibles that could push them to the next level. Um, yeah, it was solid. It was. Uh, I, I enjoyed the uh, the wrestling in this one. Uh, there was one. Noticeable balls up near the finish where Taylor just completely balls up the uh the hot shot, and it was very, very obvious that he his his throat had gone absolutely nowhere near the top rope at all. Um, that was actually the move leading into the the Samoan drop or the uh, what was it called? The, the Wall stop- Street crash, the Wall Street crash, okay. Um but other than that, yeah, I, I enjoyed this one. Um, as I say, I enjoy watching two guys that can do the basics very well. And it, it was interesting to watch, you know, the mechanics and the it, just all that sort of stuff. I, I'm, I'm a bit, I, I like
0: that stuff. Fair enough. Liam?
1: Oh, I love the irony here that we'd end up having a situation where Wall Street was very soon off to the WWF to be IRS. And he would be replaced in the York Foundation by Terry Taylor,
0: who became Terence Taylor. Ter- of yeah,
1: because you, you know you have to have a full name if you're a bad guy. Only only nice, cheerful, amiable baby faces use the short version of their names. Absolute arseholes use their full name. We know this,
0: like uh, our former guest Douglas Williams as he became known in uh, TNA.
1: Yeah, but we got to call him Doug, which means he's a nice fellow here in 2020. Indeed,
0: absolutely. Um,
1: So, and in other news, in a bit of a uh, where-are-they-now docu-series that people love about wrestlers, I thought I'd bring you all a 2020 update about the status of that computer. It's currently serving a prison term after being found guilty of spot-fixing charges.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So match number seven sees the Motor City Madman and the Big Cat take on the Skyscrapers, who are reuniting as a one-off on this match. Uh, big Cat is the future Mr. Hughes. Motor City Madman was a perennial jobber in WCW, big lad. Um, the Skyscrapers are the original lineup of Sid Vicious and Dan Spirey because, of course, the new Skyscrapers of Dan Spivey and Mark Callas were no more when Mark Callis, a month off before this, went to the WWF and became The Undertaker. So they attack their opponents while the on-screen stats are still on the screen. Um, they double back body drop Big Cat, and then they both splash the madman in the corner. Uh, Vicious struggles to hoist him up into a powerbomb and needs help from Spivey. He hits it, gets the pin in a mere 61 seconds. Big pop. Perfect example of hiding weaknesses. Why? Just why? I mean, why? <laughs> I'm I'm guessing that uh, they were put in the skyscrapers. I think they had they did really tag up anymore. No, after they, that they, this was
2: as far as I know the last time they teamed. I mean, they're certainly not on any more pay per views together. Um, just in a in a pay-per-view that's that's got 14 matches and a good proportion of them being tag matches anyway why the fuck is this even here i mean i get that they want to get sid on the pay-per-view maybe but why i mean what is the purpose for this match and if they do want to squash someone i mean fucking motor city madman you yeah, know it, it can't even get up for like the, the double power bomb um, Oh, and and the like. The other main spot of the match where they go for the double backdrop is fucked up the first time as well. I mean, just ugh, absolute fucking waste of time.
0: Because I mean, the the previous pay per view was uh, Halloween Havoc nineteen ninety, and Sid in a singles run had challenged Sting for the world title at that. Yeah, that I mean, show.
2: What, what a come down, you know? From, yeah. um <laughs> No, I just my 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 whole notes for this match are basically just. Why? Why? Why?
1: I mean, I I do love a good old-fashioned Swift skyscrapers mauling, and for some reason uh, ones that are extremely awkward are of the very top shelf of that. I think you guys probably remember, I'm trying to remember who's in it exactly, but there was one uh, that's floating around YouTube where they squashed a a couple of guys, one of whom was extremely uncooperative. I'm trying to remember who was... Um, yes, yeah, that was that was just car wreck fascination. And this was quite similar. It was fun watching. You know, it, uh, you'll see worse people, but these are not these. It's not two very good subjects here in the madman and big cat. So to, to watch them just take their shit and eat it. Is is quite entertaining and it didn't last long. But I have to agree in the grand scheme of things, even if, though I did get a little bit of personal gratification out of this being here, I still would agree and wonder why bother. I suppose it is literally a knee-joke to, oh shit, Sid was main eventing in the last one and we we have absolutely nothing for him. We need to get him on the show somehow.
0: Um, although I have discovered something, just um, just searching through for a few things for for Sid here, that um, in between Halloween Havoc 1990 and Starcade 90, we did have another major event. We had Clash of the Champions 13 on November the 20th in Jacksonville. And do you know what the, the sixth match was? It was... Sergeant Kruger and Colonel De Klerk beating The Beast and Kaluha in what was apparently a Pato O'Connor Memorial Tournament qualifying match.
1: Oh, fuck, this shit runs deeper. Oh, yes! <laughs> but at least they were trying to promote it. It, it, it didn't particularly work, because unless they were big-name stars in a match, the crowd just weren't having it, were they?
0: No, it's a five-minute match between four people who no one knew who the fuck they were. But I do think... I think we have got a Twitter challenge on our hands here. I mean, you know how we've been saying that, you know, we we are becoming part of this niche community of people who love their WCW. I, I reckon if we put a message out there and we tag our friends like WCW Worldwide and Guy Evans and people like that, someone somewhere is going to know who Danny Johnson and Troy Montour were, and how the fuck they got onto a pay per view.
1: That was Ole Anderson's last act of spite. Who knows?
0: <laughs> oh, man. Right. So, match number eight sees Tommy Rich and Ricky Morton with Robert Gibson in their corner, taking on the fabulous Freebirds with Little Richard Marley. Because, uh, as you've alluded to already, Carl, what do we need to break up a tag team tournament? More tag team matches. Mm -hmm. So, Gibson is on crutches with a heavy-duty knee brace on the Freebirds. Have their faces painted up with the Confederate flag with sequin capes to match. Doubt you could do that these days. <laughs> it was a different time. <laughs> Little Richard Marley is Rocky King, who was a WCW jobber who then became a referee. The Freebirds are wearing sequined dungarees, which uh, is an unusual look. Gibson gets revenge um, as his knee injury in storyline was caused by the Freebirds by punching Hayes on the outside. We get stereo figure four leg locks by the Baby faces on the freebirds. Uh, this match is full of entertaining spots to pop the crowd, and together with the skyscrapers, Squash has at least brought a deflated crowd back to life hayes positions morton on the canvas with his leg outstretched for marley to come off the top and jump down on but gibson smacks him in the back with his crutch and marley falls into garvin garvin then turns around to argue with marley the distraction allows morton to roll him up for the pin in six minutes 13 seconds Uh, hayes then cheap shots marley and they both attack him, double DDTing him, which is clearly the end of little Richard Marley's association with the Freebirds. Morton and Rich come to his aid, but then the Freebirds attack Gibson on the ramp while he's on his own. Carl, your thoughts on this one? Well, first
2: of all, I thought that the post-match, uh, the distraction, and the like, the Freebirds attacking Gibson on the ramp was fantastic. I thought that yeah. did a great. Um, I'm not putting myself in the best light by saying two people attacking a man on crutches is fantastic, (laughs) am I? um,
0: I thought it was great camera work as well, the way you had the the baby faces in the background, in the ring, helping out Richard Marlin in the foreground, almost in the shadows there, wasn't it? You had the
2: Freebirds. I thought that did a great job of putting over the Freebirds as these real, dastardly, absolute bastards. You know, um, and I, I really like the Hayes and Garvin version of the Freebirds. Mm. I I know a lot of people slag them and a lot of people don't particularly like that combination because they're comparing them to the original stable. But I actually really like the Hayes and Garvin partnership. Um, I think that possibly if if they were another tag team, not the Freebirds, but if they were called something else, I think they would get a lot more appreciation, if you like. Um, But I think they're, they're compared obviously to that original stable um there were some nice spots in this match i i enjoyed the um the little um the spot with hayes where he got his head put into the post on the outside um there was you know where uh, where gibson um he, he blocks it and then gibson gives him a a smack and then he gets his head put into the post i enjoyed that one um and I, I just thought it was a it was a nice little match. I mean, it was nothing spectacular, but it 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 kept up the pace quite well. It um it, it was it was just a nice little filler, if you like, if if you needed a filler in a match of four, you know, show of fourteen <laughs> matches. But um, yeah, but yeah, I, I I enjoyed this one.
0: I think it was a good liver though, wasn't it? It brought the yeah. crowd up. Yeah, Liam.
1: Well, interestingly enough, the Three Birds would dabble with uh, having a manager again after this. Uh, yes. I think it was a couple of weeks later that they introduced some schmuck, some no-name who wouldn't go on to anything significant. I think it was like D- Diamond Dallas Page or something. So yeah, uh, that, that was also a complete wash, obviously.
0: Didn't they also have Big Daddy Dink, or Oliver Dink? Oh, yeah. I think
2: I remember yeah. That. yeah. Oh. that that was uh, I think that was slightly later on. I think that was early '91 that he came. That was
1: a babyface turn before that, wasn't it? Ah. And that was one of those things about the three birds. It's all right saying yeah, they do certain things that are really good, dastly things to do. But one thing that I always struggle with is there are too many acts in wrestling who. Will be really good Dastly Hills when they are hills, but then their baby faces a year later, and then they're hill again. They're both, and it's one thing I hope doesn't affect some of the the remaining really good hill acts. I mean, the first one that comes to mind is MJF in AEW, and the last thing you want to see happen is what would probably happen if WWE got their hands on him. It would be like turning his allegiance once every 12 to 18 months, like they've done with guys like Elias and Rusev. It just, how can you take their dastardly acts seriously when, you know, they're completely forgetting it all and being nice the next minute and then they're back yeah. to being absolute arseholes and there's never any sort of, you know, you think of television right now, at least do a good enough job of explaining someone's motivations for being unlikable in season two but being someone's right behind in season three. It's usually a lot more nuanced and explained and relatable. But with wrestling, it's just like, eh, switch, eh, switch. Tension spans a fucking goldfish.
0: Yeah, big show syndrome. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, we then go to uh, Tony Schiavone. He's with the U.S. champion Stan Hansen, who, as we all know, is batshit crazy. He's got the Texas bull rope match with the former champion Lex Luger coming later in the show. He's complaining that they made him take the bell off the bull rope because it would be too violent. Although legend has it that just someone forgot to bring the bell. Um, it's as if uh, Ian Pitbull Johnson <laughs> was, was working Starcader. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Forgotten the uh, bell. Yes. Um, There's a story that I told when I was interviewed by um, by Carl about uh, a promoter from um, the Isle of Sheppey who hired Hamlock to run a show um, at his venue. And um, we had a main event of a ladder match. And basically, um, we brought the wrestlers, the ring, the referee, the MC... Um, and he needed to bring the ladder and forgot. So we didn't have a ladder match. There's more to the story than that, but you you need to listen to Is It Shane Ritchie podcast to get the whole whole tale. (laughs) Um, So... Anyway, talking of batshit crazy, it's back to the tag team tournament, and what's interesting to note is just after one round of this clusterfuck, they've already stopped calling it the annual Pat O'Connor Memorial Tag Team (laughs) Tournament, because they've realised they never want to do this again. Um, So, the first semi-final is uh, Conan and Rey Mysterio against the Steiner Brothers. So, both of the Mexican team made it to the ring at least, but Mysterio looks banged up, and as we've said already, Conan's Working on one leg from the start, Conan starts with Rick and some great mat. Does some great mat work with trips and grapevines to Rick's legs. Oh, and Conan's name is also misspelt with just um, C O N A N rather than double N A N, isn't it? In the uh, on the graphics as well. Just remembered that. Um, Scott gets Conan up on his shoulders. Rick hits a top rope bulldog as the crowd. Bark their approval. Um, Conan then tags Mysterio in after that move, and there's a noticeable bruise on his left leg from the botched dive in the first match. Rick can be heard saying to Scott, "Go home." And moments later, Mysterio charges at Rick for a Hurricane Rana, gets powerbombed to the mat for the three count in just two minutes and fifty-one seconds. Short and sweet, Carl.
2: Yeah, I mean, same as you. I enjoyed the uh, the mat work um, for as long as it lasted. Um I, I thought the, the little leg trip was nice. Oh. Um um as was the the escape from the, uh, the like the grapevine move. Um uh yeah, nice top rope bulldog. Um the finish kind of seemed a little bit out of nowhere. Uh again, you know, it, it comes back to that thing of these matches all seeming pretty disjointed. You know, um that there's no clear plan, there's no clear. it just seems to come out of nowhere.
0: Yeah, yeah. Make, it no. makes you wonder how much of a language barrier there is. But, I mean, I know Conan spoke perfect English. I mean, he, uh, so I think that might have been why, one of the reasons why he was put in this team, is a, a translator, if anything.
2: Mm. It's similar to um, Norman Smiley being in the match earlier with the Mexicans, just to uh, kind yeah. of kind of smooth things along, if you like. But um, not really much else to add to that. I mean, it only went a couple of minutes, didn't it? Yeah, three minutes. Yeah, Liam?
1: Yeah, I kind of appreciated the finish where someone has attempted, you know, the move that is also known as the Frankensteiner on a Steiner and gets the uh, the piss powerbomb out of them for their insolence. I did get a little kick out of that.
0: Oh, I hadn't even thought of that, yes.
1: How dare you try to Frankensteiner a Steiner, brother?
2: Splat. Despite the move actually... Despite the move actually coming from Mexico in the first place, but uh, listen,
1: listen here, right? I have heard Scott Steiner on commentary and he has reliably informed me, with no sort of bias whatsoever, that it is not a hurricane runner, that is a Frankensteiner. It'd always make me laugh when he do he do a few guest uh, commentary spots, both WCW and Tien, I think where well, he'd always go, It's not a hurricane runner, it's a Frankensteiner You can just imagine the, the saliva coming out of his mouth as he says that and barks his uh, his gripes on the commentary booth. Uh-huh.
0: Um, so, Tony Schiavone next is with uh, Arn Anson and Barry Windham. They show what happened to Ric Flair in his limousine, which was being driven by Teddy Long and was therefore driven into an ambush. Quite a while there was a cameraman in the limo with Flair, is anyone's guess. Anyway, shit I have in a the theory.
1: Bed. Oh, go on. I have a theory. Maybe I should get into this a little bit later, but I'll start now that I've brought it up. Now, I'll say my theory starts with I think the cameraman was there at Flair's behest. I'll continue this later on once the story develops.
0: Okay, fair enough. Uh, Anyway, never mind that shit. Here come the Soviets. So it's our second tag team tournament semi-final. Viktor Zangiev and Salman Hashimikov versus Mr. Saito and the great Mutar. So at least the Soviets are used to working with Japanese foes in New Japan. Uh, Mutar kicks out of a German suplex from Zangiev. Saito, the man with the amateur credentials, tags in. Paulie says that they don't look like the Russian wrestlers he's seen before. Well, they wouldn't because these guys are actually Soviet. Um, They're they're not Russia. They're from what is now Georgia, not American Georgia, obviously, the European Georgia. Um, Saito locks on a Scorpion and Paulie says that that's the move that won the non-existent Japanese tournament for Saito and Muta, which I thought was just a lovely bullshit touch that I loved um, Hashimikov is suplexing Muta all over the place so he tags out to the policeman of the match Saito who hits a Saito suplex out of nowhere and gets the pinfall in just 3 minutes and 8 seconds so we've basically had 2 3 minute semi-finals and it's USA versus Japan the number 1 and number 2 seeds meeting in the finals anyway let's stop, let's stop thinking about a 3 minute semi and go to Carl I'm,
2: uh, I'm an expert on a, a three-minute semi, to be perfectly honest. Um, but that's another story for another day. Um, yeah, another quick match. Um, I I really liked the uh, the, the work with uh, Zangief and Muta at the start. I thought I thought they worked pretty well together. I don't know if they they worked together in that little run that they had in New Japan, but um, I thought I would have liked to have seen a, a singles between the two. You know, I I'd, um, I'd, I did enjoy that um, nice clothesline and you know nice suplex for the finish. And again, it you know it it just comes pretty much out of nowhere. Mm. Yeah. It's um, it, again that that feeling of sort of disjoint. You know, there's no build up to the finish. It's just
0: it's just there. Yeah. Which both of the the Soviet matches have been have been like that, haven't
2: they? Yeah.
1: Well, a, a lot of reviews online about uh, these matches involving the Soviet squad um, reference. Oh, it's very UFC esque. Obviously, a lot a lot of these reviews are written like in more modern day, like we're looking at this now. And it's funny when you think about that, that aspect of it, the the reason why that's an apt comparison is because yeah, with uh, MMA, with, with the nature of it, it's not always pretty and it can have, it can end at any moment. So there is that sort of reference to it, but obviously in 1990 in the, in middle America, they're not ready for that sort of state of the art realism. That's not their, their scene. Um, I've got to say though This is the second match on the show With the uh, Soviet Union team And Zangief in particular I'm so disappointed I've not seen one single spinning clothesline Or one single spinning (laughs) pole driver Uh, I want a refund (laughs) And if you don't understand that joke You don't deserve to be my friend Not that that's a particularly large line Even with social distancing
0: (laughs) Okay, so we uh, are, we have uh, a promo with Doom and Teddy Long, and Doom are wearing white T-shirts, which obviously means someone's going to be bleeding in their match. So match number 11, it is, uh, we're on to the feature matches now. It's the Texas Bull Rope match for the US heavyweight title. Lex Luger, the former champion, takes on Stan Hansen. So uh, as I said, this is a return match from Halloween Havoc, where Hansen shocked everyone by beating Luger and ending his year-and-a-half-long title run. Um, Hansen was also the All Japan Triple Crown Champion at this point in time. Um, Luger looks fired up and, dare I say, he looks motivated. Although, then again, if you're not motivated against Stan Hansen, he'll beat it into you. Hansen comes down with his chewing tobacco dripping down his chest. The commentators do explain the rules of this match that you've got to drag your opponent and touch all four corners in succession to win the match. No pinfalls, no submissions, and importantly, no disqualifications or countouts. So this one starts as a brawl, as you'd expect. It soon spills to the outside, where Hansen clobbers Luger with a chair. Hansen later throws Luger over the top rope with the ball rope around Luger's neck, trying to hang him. Um, Hansen touches three corners, but then Luger charges at him with a clothesline to break his momentum. Momentum. On the outside, Luger uses the rope to pull Hansen into the ring post shoulder first. Uh, Back in the ring, Luger lands three weird-looking leg drops while still holding onto the top rope. He hits three turnbuckles. He tries to drag Hansen to a fourth in the tug of war, but then Hansen lets go, and Luger's momentum catapults him into the fourth turnbuckle, but in doing so, he squashes the referee in the corner. Nick Patrick comes down and starts counting Hansen's turnbuckle touches. Hansen touches all four buckles, and Nick Patrick declares him the winner, but then our original referee, Randy Anson, overrules this and says that Luger won because he touched all four turnbuckles first and is the new U.S. champion. Carl, your thoughts on this one?
2: Yeah, I thought this was a, a decent match. I thought, I thought that they, they, they built and teased you know, the stipulation, worked the stipulation with the, the, uh, the turnbuckles having to touch all four corners yeah, quite well. Um, there was some good crisp stuff in this. There was um, some absolutely awful stuff in this as well. Um, Luger goes on a flurry at one point and hits some really nice crisp offense and then goes for a headbutt. And I don't know if he's ever done a headbutt before at this point, but it looks absolutely appalling, (laughs) Um, which is followed shortly after by an awful German-style suplex from Hansen where they just sort of land in a heap um, but a lot of it was very crisp, you know, um, and the crowd are clearly into it. You know, they uh, they're very behind Luger. Um, yeah, I thought I thought this was this was quite decent, all in all.
0: Cool. Okay, uh, Liam. Oh man,
1: we we have waited so long. We've got through what 56 matches on this card so far, yes. and we are finally getting to the point where we're getting some, as you put it, featured matches. Uh, properly built up feuds with stars and stakes and and we're getting to that point where the viewers at home and the live crowd are really waiting for these matches, the sort of matches that compel you to fork over your money for a ticket or a pay-per-view viewing and they thank us with that fucking finish and to make matters worse, that's, 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 that's not the last iffy finish on the show
0: <laughs> well I think yeah, the reason for this was, as I mentioned, that um, Hanson was the Triple Crown champion in all Japan at the time, so um, uh, he was not going to be taking a, a, a loss under any circumstances, or you know, doing doing a pinfall job or anything like that. So I guess the bull rope match. Means that he doesn't get pinned to lose the match. It's just t- touching turnbuckles, and the the hokey finish kind of protects him as well. But given that he won the title two months earlier while he was Triple Crown champion, it does sort of make you wonder why they put that belt on him when he was an infrequent visitor to WCW because of his Japan tours. Um, because you know if they've put the belt on him, they've got to get it off him at some point and and he wasn't going to be losing that while he was the Triple Crown champ.
1: Well, I was going to follow up with that, because another thing you have said in the past, Dean, is, you know, having been in situations where you've had to book something delicately because of politics, you've even said yourself, if something is that much of a no-win situation, don't fucking book yourself into it. And as as you put it right there, that's exactly what they've done. Why? Because
0: um, uh, I'm sure Ooh. there's a reason it escapes me. Yeah, something... Yeah, can't quite think of it right now. Um, Okay, so we then go straight into um, the street fight for the World Tag Team Championship. So it's Arn Anderson and Barry Wyndham replacing Ric Flair versus Doom with Teddy Long. Street fight rules apply, and uh, they're all wearing street clothes, T-shirts, jeans, boots. Is how a street fight should be. But, you know, that's something you don't see in like British wrestling these days, isn't it? Or anywhere, really street fights with them done up in jeans and that. Um, anyway, obviously it starts as a brawl and will be reliant on the director cutting to the action between the pairs of combatants. Um, Anderson and Simmons pair off, as do Reed and Wyndham. Um, Simmons whips Anderson with a belt on the ramp. Reed nails Wyndham with his belt buckle and then goes headfirst into the ring post, and he is bleeding very early on. Um, he gouges the wound with the belt buckle, but Windham back suplexes him onto the floor. Simmons is also bleeding now. Um, Anderson clocks Reid over the head with a steel chair, while Wyndham whips Simmons with a weightlifting belt. Reed is now bleeding too. um Simmons hits a big spine buster on Wyndham for a two count as Wyndham rakes his eyes rather than kicking out now. Anderson is also bleeding and his t shirts ripped in half. um Wyndham intercepts Simmons on the top rope with a low blow which he follows up with a superplex for a two count. um Reed nails Anderson with a top rope shoulder block. Anderson kicks out after a chair shot to the head. Jim Ross is going crazy on commentary, putting over the intensity of the match. Um, Anson goes up to the top, but Simmons catches him coming off with a clothesline. Meanwhile, Wyndham catches Reed with a small package, but there being no legal or illegal men in the ring, and being a street fight, the referee counts both pinfalls simultaneously, and we have a double pin, one for each side. A novel finish, I guess, but not really how you want the street fight to end. They continue to beat the shit out of each other on the ramp and we wait for an announcement. We go back to the commentary desk where confusion abounds with no announcement actually made. Jim Ross assumes that Doom retained the titles as it's a no contest or no decision. Carl, what did you make of this one?
2: I really, really enjoyed this one. Uh, I remembered loving it years ago and I really, really enjoyed it. The one thing I would say though is I qu- I would question the placement of this match on the show, yeah. straight after Luger and Hansen in a, a similar kind of match. Um, I I one of one of the good things about WCW that I enjoyed was the fact that generally speaking they did put the uh, the title matches on near the end of the show. Um, they they it, it was like they they built to the big matches. Yeah um although that does have its downfalls in this regard because you've got two matches here that are on one after another which are essentially quite similar I mean, this one is turned up a little bit more than Luger and Handsome but you still have the the brawling and the the, the street fight aspect in that yes. match as well um so i would i would tend to put these maybe a match apart rather than you know one after another um but no, I I loved this match. Uh, that easily my match of the night. Um, I thought some of the stuff was absolutely fantastic. Um I enjoyed the the belly-to-back suplex that Wyndham hit Reed with on the floor. Mm. Uh, I thought the spine buster in the ring by Simmons was absolutely fantastic. Um I I loved the the chair spot with Ron Simmons and Arn Anderson and the way Arne sold that one.
0: Oh, where he just gets the chair shoved back into him. Yeah.
2: He said, yes.
0: Yeah. And he collapses face first on the canvas.
2: Yeah. I thought that was a fantastic sell job. Um, I really enjoyed Arne's bump from the, uh, the clothesline as well. Um, coming off the, uh, the turnbuckles, uh, hit with, with arm jumping off the turnbuckles and Simmons yeah. catching him with the clothesline. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely loved this one. Um, Not crazy about the finish. Um, There was a slight bit of mistiming on the finish where I I think it would have been okay had um, the referee not had to wait for the second pairing to to go into their pin um, before he started counting. And that was was a little bit obvious, I thought. But other than that, great match. Yeah, absolutely loved it.
0: Yeah, I I had another memory from the VHS tape. If I remember when i was at school i don't know how the situation came about but i remember it was in a maths class probably at the end of term or something where we could like bring videos in to watch for the last lesson of the year and among the things that were brought in i brought this tape in and wound specifically to this match because i think at the time i wanted to show people wrestling's not all bullshit watch <laughs> this everyone and i just seem to remember in and uh, in, the, in the back of my head whilst watching this match, I could remember um, the uh, you know, comments of various classmates and gasps of amazement and horror uh, from people in the class. Specifically one girl um, called Claire Connor, who then went on to become the cap- captain of the England women's cricket team who was in my class. <laughs> it just all popped into my head. Very random, I know, but I thought I'd share with you. Liam! <laughs>
1: I had a very similar situation at my secondary school where I brought in a WCW tape to show some non-fans and show them that it can be pretty cool. And it wasn't this one, but it wasn't far off because it was one of your favourites, Halloween Havoc 90. I've probably told this anecdote when you've brought up Havoc 90 and particularly the Steiner's Nasty Boys match because that was the match that turned a lot of my uh, classmates' heads Uh, They were really into that, and and yeah, when we cover that, I'm sure we'll we'll repeat these anecdotes another five times, but we'll go in depth on what was a great match as well, but yeah, uh, a lot of that happening from this, I mean, for me, this actually happened in like, would have been like 98, 99, so that was an old tape at that point, and everyone was kind of aware of the attitude era but they still dug that old school violence of the steiners and the nasties so fair enough on that front yeah this is a very good match and it's two consecutive now two matches you can really enjoy two matches that you are essentially part of the reason you are tuning in in the first place along with the main event and yeah, the finish and the silly politics behind it just kind of screws up a little bit, which is a shame. The interesting thing about this is it's like with the last match, it's the the ship finishes politics based. I suppose to an extent ninety percent of ship finishes are unless the workers involved just really can't do a finish properly, I guess. Um, and this one is amazing because um, I'll, I'll, I'll,
0: so, so what's the politics behind this one then?
1: Yeah, well, we, I think you and I were both vaguely aware of, of, of there being a situation and we've tried to like dig up it exactly like the direct source, which in most cases is usually uh, Meltzer's Observer. And in lieu of that, I know there are a few services that are really good that, that read back from guys who actually have the, the collections of the hard copies, I guess, or in, in instances where the archive is not accessible Digitally, uh, one of those people is Scott Keith, a well-known wrestling writer, and he does a uh, observer flashback. So I think I'll just, uh, to, to make it a little bit easier, I'll skip to the way he has worded it. And he goes, and I the tag title match was all kinds of screwed up. Dave is pretty sure that Flair was going to be the Scorpion all along. Whoops, I've spoiled it. And then sometime after Havoc, it was changed. It was going to be Wyndham as the Scorpion. Can you imagine that? That would have been a bit of a damp squib, wouldn't it? Which is why Flair was moved to the tag title picture, and Wyndham was missing from TV. And then they changed their mind and wanted Wyndham to chase the tag titles on house shows after Starcade, so Flair was the Scorpion again. But at the time when Flair was going to do the tag match, Doom was told they were winning in order to set up rematches with all the baby faces chasing them, including you'd imagine guys involved in the tag team. A, it, to be fair, it's a pretty big field of tag team set up, and also they wanted Doom to be. Um, to, to be the guys trying to fend them all off. Fair enough. Yeah. But then they put Wyndham into the match and decided that the horsemen needed to win the tag titles to give the show a big title change and make Doom into baby faces chasing the titles on the road again. But then Doom refused to do the job and they changed the finish again on the night of the show. But then they realised it was a street fight and they couldn't just do a schmoz finished. So they came up with a double pin... Where no one is happy. And this, my friends, is WC fucking W.
0: (laughs) Okay, so we're now ready for the final of the. Pat O'Connor Memorial Tag Team Tournament. Uh, It is Mr. Saito and the Great Muta, the number two seeds from Japan versus the Steiner Brothers, the number one seeds from America. The winners of this match are now going to be declared the international tag team champions, a downgrading of the previous champions of the universe announced earlier. Um, Our specially appointed referee is Tiger Hattori, a man able to span the language barrier if there is one. Um, seeing as they've both spent a long time in the US before. Um, the crowd chart USA, as Paul Lee talks about various Japanese stereotypes, he also says that he's uncomfortable that Hattori is refereeing, not because he could be biased for his fellow countrymen, but because he knows he won't be and he hates honesty. Brilliant, although some may say that their art imitates life. Um, Mutar gets leveled with a Stein line and immediately tags in Saito. A couple of minutes in, and we get told that the previous match between Doom and the Horseman was a no-decision. Um, Scott intercepts a handspring-elbow attempt from Mutar and then nails him with his trademark spinning belly-to-belly suplex out of the corner. Paul Lee says that Hattori previously advised Saito and uh, Jim Ross says that the only advice he should have given him would be to stay out of McDonald's, a reference to the incident that saw uh, Saito and Campetero landed in jail. Uh, in the 80s. So on the outside Rick gets his shoulder rammed into the ring post. Mutar then takes the ring bell and smacks Rick in the jaw with it. Rick's been isolated for a good few minutes as the Japanese team makes several tags. A line gives Rick the opportunity to make the tag to Scott. Scott nails Mutar with a Tiger driver but doesn't make a cover. Mutar tags out to Saito again. Paulie is annoying me on commentary by not talking about the match but trying to get himself over. The Japanese team hits Scott with with. with a spike pile driver and Scott is selling big for it. And like a lot of the other tag matches, the end of this one comes out of the blue somewhat. Scott makes a blind tag to Rick even though he's miles away from his corner. I don't think they have tag ropes in America, do they? But um, Saito clamps on the sleeper hold onto Scott but Rick comes off the top with a sunset flip onto Saito to get the three count as Scott cuts off Mutar to win the tournament in 10 minutes and 52 seconds to a huge pile Pop from the crowd. Uh, what did you think of this one, um, Carl?
2: Yeah, I thought, um, as you say, great pop for the uh, for the finish. And at least with this match, there was a little bit more of a build up, um, even though the, it it was marginal. You know, at least there was that that attempt at putting a little bit of a build up towards the finish in there. Yeah. Um, I, I enjoyed this one. I thought there was some nice, very crisp exchanges, especially with Muta and Scott Steiner um near the start um nice spinning kick by Muta yeah um but i enjoyed some of the uh, the exchanges with him and rick as well i thought um i thought they they had some pretty good chemistry together um i enjoyed jim ross's line um as muta crotched himself on the top rope of uh, sayonara my date tonight <laughs> yeah just a, a nice little match to finish with really uh, it didn't run too long um it didn't outstay its welcome and yeah for what it was i thought it was it was pretty good really
0: yeah do do they have uh tag ropes in north america when you did canada canadian tours did they have tag ropes there for their matches uh
2: i can't honestly remember i, I know that um in the in the two main promotions they did certainly in the 80s didn't they i don't know when that actually disappeared
0: Okay. Uh, I know um well premier promotions that I work for being old school as they come, they still have them, but maybe it's something that's uh that's phasing out. But I mean the Steiners really were absolutely on top of their game. They were the best tag team in the world at this point, weren't they?
2: Yeah, they were they they were fantastic. Um and they and they deserved, you know, to be put over the in the way they were on this on this show. Um the the crowd were clearly behind him as well. Um, yeah, really, really, really good at this time. Um, Steiner's absolutely great around this time.
1: Yeah, at least we are getting a, a good run of matches here at the Clarence. It's a shame we've had to wade through so much of a, of a shower of non-entity to get here. Uh, and it is annoying how many asterisks all the all the good matches on this show have, such as political finishes or or th- be, being the participant's third match of the night. Yeah. In in this case, it's, it's a shame. You know, you I, I remember it became a bit of an internet meme, I believe. Uh, or I think it was this show that everyone was having a big online debate about how it should have been rebooked, but. Um, but yeah, uh, in, in this case, you, there's whatever your point of view on it. There's definitely an argument to be made that you make this a bit more of a sensibly booked show, and, and they're absolutely laughing. But I suppose that's why Ole Anderson had his ass holed out the door is because they had the 1989 that they had, Jim Crockett Promotions, and mm. here in 1990, this is their follow-up to that great momentum. Which is such a shame considering the star power and the talent they have at their disposal. They've managed to make a complete bollocks of it.
0: Um, so Jim Hurd, the vice president of WCW, presents the trophy to the Steiners. He's got all the charisma of a rice pudding. <laughs> um, he also calls this the first annual tournament. Worryingly, uh, Scott cuts a promo to remind us all that he couldn't string a sentence together well before he ever became Big Popper Pump. The Steiners walk off then without even bothering to collect the trophy fantastic <laughs> we go back to the commentators while the ring crew finish off putting the cage together for our main event so the 14th match of this show is a cage match for the wcw world heavyweight titled sting versus the black scorpion so special guest referee dick the bruiser is introduced to a good ovation as paulie says how he looks like popeye which should be Kind of does. Uh, the Black Scorpion comes out, but he's then followed by three other Black Scorpions. Apparently, these were the same people who were previous Scorpions at other events, which was a nice touch that nobody ever would have really recognised at the time. Um, then some strange craft or pod descends from the ceiling and opens up, revealing a fifth Black Scorpion who says in Ole Anson's synthesised voice, which honestly isn't the same as a shock master, uh, that the others are just messengers, and he is the real black scorpion. We're also told that this stipulation, sorry, this match has a stipulation of title versus mask. Within the first minute, and despite trying to hide his familiar wrestling style, you can hear some fans at ringside chanting Nature Boy at the Scorpion. Uh, The opening five minutes are fought at a slow pace, with the advantage going back and forth, with no one really taking control. The Scorpion locks on what is described as a Japanese or European-style head scissors, leading the commentators to speculate if the Scorpion is from overseas. In true Rick Flair style. He gets Sting into the corner a lot of the time, but he never throws a chop using right-hand punches instead. He's also using a lot of clotheslines, which isn't a move you associate with Flair. The Scorpion then locks on a chin lock while trying to use the ropes for leverage, but Dick the Bruiser keeps throwing his leg off the ropes. This is a bit of a plodding match so far, and the crowd have gone back to being silent. Let's hope things pick up. Sting then executes a military press and a pair of clotheslines but then misses a cross body block and crashes into the cage the scorpion throws Sting head first into the cage and then hits a pile driver for a two count Dick the Bruiser incidentally is administering the slowest counts in wrestling history um Sting lands a sting a splash. He goes for the Scorpion Deathlock ironically on the Black Scorpion. He fights out of the move the Scorpion does but he's then rammed headfirst into the cage. Sting then takes the mask of the Scorpion off but then he's got a silver mask on underneath. Ross says that the scorpion seems more familiar now, as you can see Flair's platinum blonde hair poking out the back of the mask. The scorpion's on the top rope, but Sting slumps onto the ropes when the scorpion crotches himself on the top. Scorpion goes headfirst into the cage again and blades through the mask and gets pressed slammed into the cage. Uh, Ross indicates that we're running low on time, which was legit as the show is overrunning at this point. Sting is now in control of the match. He goes up top. He lands a top rope crossbody block for the win in 18 minutes and 31 seconds. The other black scorpions then immediately enter the cage. Now the door has been unlocked as the match is over and Sting and Dick the Bruiser fight them off in the chaos that ensues the real scorpion tries to climb over the top of the cage, no idea why he didn't just use the fucking door Windham and Anderson run in and Anderson hits Dick the Bruiser with a chair Anderson DDT's Sting on the chair and apparently we have two minutes left on the broadcast Sting is being held out and battered with a chair, apparently this was meant to be a lot more intense than this but they did have to cut it short as I said they were legitimately out of time Babyface, various faces. Try and run and climb the cage and run in as the door has now been locked again the Steiners come down with bolt cutters but they get and they finally get inside the cage sting finally then pulls off the mask in a shockingly bad piece of camera work in a very crowded ring uh, and we finally see that it is Rick Flair under the mask we don't even have time for the usual end credits and the ma- the show and the match and the show end. Like that, Carl. How did you think our main event went? Oh, for fuck's sake! Um, Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um,
2: I again, this is this is one of them matches that really emphasised the the difference in production between WCW at this time and the WWF. Again, those those little touches make all the difference. I mean the uh, from the start where you've got the the four or was it four black scorpions or five black scorpions four uh, yeah four black scorpions and um, and one of them even looked like a wrestler which was nice um, I mean <laughs> quite why they couldn't at least put people with a little bit of bulk under those bonnets you know and in them suits for for the entrance. Uh, I don't know but the, the, the going on to the special effects then and the 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 uh according to Jim Ross like a giant pod from outer space of some kind descending onto the ramp um I was, I was sort of half expecting Richard O'Brien to walk out and um you know um the crystal maze to start but um it was Richard O'Brien wasn't it that did the crystal yes right okay excellent um yeah, to to other little touches like the that the camera work and seeing the cameraman's the cameraman's legs dangling down from the uh, the top of the cage while um, while the match is going on. Well, um, did
0: you notice that someone was still putting the uh, cage together while Capetta was making his introductions?
2: <laughs> I didn't notice that. None. Yeah, there's uh, a
0: crew there's a crew member in the corner and they just pan the camera in to cut him out of the picture. <laughs>
2: but it's 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 all these little touches you know that um that you would never ever see on a WWF production for example yeah. uh, and it just it just emphasizes the difference and it makes it look more bush league if you like and as i said before i i say that with all the love in the world for early 90s wcw but they really did do a shit job of production at times <laughs> um i Another point to this match was the uh, the commentary. Um, and as you mentioned before, Paul Lee's references to Dick the Bruiser looking like Popeye. And there's a couple of different references to that through the match. And similar to his partnership with Jesse Ventura a year or two later, Jim Ross just won't engage with Paul Lee at all. You know, he's um, yeah. he, he's just ignored, basically. Uh, the actual match itself, as you said, was a, a plodding kind of match, and that that really wasn't helped by Dick the Bruiser's incredibly slow counts. Um, and I appreciate that Ric Flair was trying not to work like Ric Flair, but it's honestly the the biggest load of bollocks. It it, it really is though. Um, the match picks up a little bit, mostly when Sting is on offense, and the crowd have at least got something to pop for. Yeah, uh, the press slams, the the clotheslines, the the, the big, more flashy offensive moves. Uh, the there was a strange um, the the crowd before the match cuts to. The crowd who, there's a section of fans who are holding up black scorpion uh, signs. Yes. And straight after that, they cut to a section of people holding up lettered signs which appear to spell Stingog. Um, <laughs> I,
0: didn't, I didn't notice that one. Yeah, there's
2: S T I N G O G, which is unusual. um never did quite figure that one out. But um, also, again, little production things. Jim Ross is obviously getting no pointers whatsoever from the production team. And his cry of, I don't know how much time we have left. I'd love to know, though, Um, (laughs) (laughs) towards the end of the match. (laughs) I absolutely creased um, at that. I I really did. Um, But, yeah, it's... again that, that the whole thing of the black scorpion as you said before um is the it's a nice idea in theory but like with a lot of things in wcw everything is a nice idea in theory until it gets wcw um but See,
0: I, think, I think the only time i can think they did something like that right was when Rick Rude came in as the WCW Halloween Phantom at um, yes. Halloween Havoc '91, and that was because he was unmasked voluntarily the first night he was in, and hit a Rude Awakening Net Breaker, and you knew it was you knew who it was straight away. Yeah, which I mean was a a way of making entrance. You could argue that there'd have been more value to having him, you know, having him advertised as debuting as Rick Rude. But I always liked that entrance into a promotion.
2: Yeah. No, that, that one, that one was a good, uh, a good one that was done well. But as, as for the, the the match itself, I I thought it was a a, a phrase that I'm um, slowly developing into a catchphrase at this point. Absolute cack.
1: (laughs) Well, as you guys have mentioned, yeah, this, this show is littered with, you know, brain farts and production gaffes and you start to think, yeah, this is what WCW is all about. Well, this main event is like WCW, even though it wasn't a thing back then, this is essentially this cage match is WCW saying, hold my beer. You ain't seen nothing yet because oh, uh, there's nothing I can really add other you know, that we haven't already discussed. But this is just absolutely dreadful and you don't you don't know if it's gonna be particularly better at this juncture in time when Dusty Rose takes over which they're not allowed to say they have been completely denying but it's you know, but behind the scenes it's an absolute given that he's coming taking over. They just can't legally say it. They're probably saying, we've never even heard of Dusty Rhodes. Who's Dusty Rhodes? Um, yeah. But yeah, it's pretty much a foregone conclusion, and it's decisions like this as why. And they went out with an absolute bang, didn't he? Oh, my God. And they literally had to come to Ric Flair to, to save them out of here. And if I remember correctly, in return for that, he got the belt back very soon after this.
0: January, yeah, mm. next month. Oh, dear. But, you know, the the other thing that, that really stands out here is that, um, as as you, as um, I mentioned a little bit earlier, that this beatdown of Sting apparently was meant to um, replicate the horseman's beating of Dusty Rhodes several years earlier, which is one of those iconic moments in in, in wrestling, the, the assault on Dusty when they break his arm. And because they they overran and they ran out of time they they had to dilute it all and rush it all, and you had this cage crowded with with traffic that really meant you couldn't see things. You think we had um we had the the parade of colors and the marines at the beginning we had uh um, the Sam Muchnick, the promoter, speaking to uh, the crowd. We had the parade of flags for the tournament. We had the presentation for the tournament. We had the spacecraft coming down from the ceiling for the Black Scorpion. There was so much of stuff that didn't need to be there that would have given them the time to make that angle, which obviously is what they're going to try and draw money from, make that angle work. And it's like, you know, we see eight years later at Starcade 98, we see that they run out of time horrendously. Um, Sorry, yeah, Halloween Havoc 98, they run out of time horrendously on pay-per-view and miss the main event. So it's good to see that they hadn't learned any lessons from like, eight years previous. And why was that? Uh, I'm not sure the answer myself. Liam, can you uh, chip in there?
1: I'm, I'm too beaten down to even think <laughs> of the answer. 14 <laughs> matches. 14. 14 matches.
0: Well, uh. we will we will close the book and draw the line under Starcade 90. A shit show, but we watched it over and over again on VHS in our childhoods because we had nothing else to watch. Um, so, before we let you go, Carl, with every guest of ours, of course, we ask for the their choice of uh, WCW theme tune. So, uh, Liam, have you got the tune queued up and ready to go?
1: We are all set.
0: Okay, so press play in three, two, one... choice. So, for those who may not know, Carl, tell us, what is this tune? Uh, this was a theme
2: that was used by Arn Anderson predominantly, but um, also during his uh, Dangerous Alliance run, and previous to that, with his uh, in his tag team with Larry Abisko, the Enforcers. Yeah.
0: I love that tag team. I think it's one of the most underrated and forgotten about teams going. I love all it's... their little tricks and WC. It's a, it's a funny thing because it,
2: it's it's another theme with WCW. They they cut so many things off within the first year of them being together. It was uh, we got less than a year of the Enforcers. We got less than a year of the Hollywood Blondes. You know we got less than a year of the Dangerous Alliance.
0: Yeah. And and then too long of the NWO. Cause didn't well, know, yeah. it's So what made you choose this uh, this one?
2: Oh, hey, I I just love the the song. Um, I I just love the the, the tune. The uh, it's it's a, a great heel entrance music. I think it's just a great heel track.
0: It's got it's got that kind of a bit of a swaggering attitude and a yeah pay attention. Yeah, Oh, cool. And and I mean, I know we're stating the obvious here, but what what an amazing. Wrestler, what an amazing work oh, arn yeah. anderson was totally yeah
2: absolutely yeah but one of the the very best yeah always always one of my favorites um yeah I, just so many different things and so many different kind of eras of arn anderson um and worked with so many different people you know he, he wasn't one of these guys that could only work with one or two people and get the best out of that match you know so many different opponents and so many different matches and yeah you you knew what you were getting you were getting a a good solid match you know you were and in some cases spectacular and yeah just one of the the all-time one of the greatest all-time pros i think
0: awesome yeah definitely that is a, a magnificent choice, and well, that um, that brings this uh, this episode come to a uh, uh, conclusion. So, Carl, if um if anyone wants to get a hold of you on um, social media, how can they find you?
2: Well, I mean, the uh, the podcast can be found on a number of different platforms. Now, um, it can be found predominantly on soundcloud but it's also available on various other platforms now as well um the name of the podcast again is is it shame richie i have also set up a little uh website just a very basic thing where people can go and take a look at some of the the pictures of people that have either appeared on the show or we've talked about in some form on the show um because some of the stories i tell um may not have familiar characters um some people will be familiar to people but others are very much you know unfamiliar um is there a
0: photo gallery of John Short
2: um there isn't a gallery yet but I, there is a John Short appreciation page on Facebook <laughs> which uh which I didn't set up um but uh that, that's that's worth checking out as well
0: okay um and you guys are on Twitter and things like yeah, that? Yeah, we um,
2: Facebook and Twitter under the name Comroy Pod, and yeah, as I said, SoundCloud. We're on Anchor now, which uh, which distributes us to all the uh, all the different kind of podcasting platforms, um, and that and that little website I've set up is www. Com. So, yeah please do check it out and i'd love to hear your feedback
0: excellent okay and um if you want to get a hold of us, we're on the social media platforms on um, Twitter at BecauseWCW and on Facebook.com forward slash BecauseWCW. Um, and you can go to our website, becausewcw.podbean.com to explore our entire back catalogue. But It should also be wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, and that, I think, brings us to an end. So, Carl, thank you so much for giving up your time to uh, spend this evening in our company we very much appreciate it
2: no, thank you it's been a pleasure
0: good luck with your show as well and on behalf of Liam this is me the Twisted Genius saying thank you for downloading this show we'll see you ringside